0: Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. And while I get 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 25. Well, last time we were together, there was a man named Nabal. And he had sent his flocks out into the wilderness for the winter grazing but they weren't alone. David, who was on the run from the king, and about 600 men were hiding out in the wilderness in what's called the desert of Paran, right where he sent his flocks to. Now, there's a large herd, thousands of, of uh, sheep and goats and a uh, great number of shepherds. And David, you know, a lot of people could have, taken some provision you could have eaten well off the sheep and people would have gone oh hey we lost a few sheep where did they go that oh, must have just been you know must have just been wolves or you know mountain lions or whatever but David ordered his men do not harm them in fact we're told uh, last week we read how the servants of Nabal felt safer than they had ever felt protected from bandits and predatory animals and just you know in general were better off by the presence of David and his men there. So it came time for the shearing in the spring and festivals and harvest. It's a time of abundance and celebration, kind of like our Christmas or Thanksgiving. And David sent messengers to Nabal and said, hey, Nabal, greetings, you know. You can ask your servants. Like we we were out there with them. We did not take anything from them. We did not cause them harm. We were good to you and your people. And we're just asking that whatever you can help us with, please do so. Now, Nabal, we're not told whether he actually believed it or was just saying it to be a jerk, but he was taking the stance that David was a rebellious servant against Saul the king. Now, we know that that's not the case, uh, that David was actually running from Saul, who was trying to unjustly murder him, even though David had done nothing wrong. But for whatever reason, whether he actually believed it or just felt like using that as an excuse, Nabal rejected David's request. And he didn't just say, no, hey, David, I believe that you are wrong. I believe that the king, uh, you know, I believe that the king is is the true king and you're rebellious to him. He could have said that. He, he could have been just like, hey, you know what? I can't help you. Could have been polite about it. But instead, he was vindictive, mean, insult, purposely insulting. And so David responds accordingly and, you know, gets 400 of his men, leaves 200 back to guard everything, and then he gets 400 of his men and they strap on their swords and they go and they are going to waste Nabal. They're going to take him out. One of the servants goes and tells Nabal's wife, Abigail, says, hey, uh, your husband really stepped in at this time. And, and I- I'm worried. He, it wasn't just that he said no, but he basically gave him the finger and then dared them to come at him. Abigail was a prudent woman, so she got these peace offerings, you know, grain, provisions, wine, meat, and she t- loaded them up on donkeys, and they went out and they met David, and that's where we find ourselves today, where she is, uh, we ended last week with him, her basically saying, hey, my husband, he's, he's an idiot. Um, don't take this out on on the people around him, you know, Don't do a wicked thing. Verse 28, please forgive your servants' presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for you, my Lord, because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing has been found in you as long as you live. So, Abigail is saying, hey, we know. We know what's going on. We know that you didn't do anything wrong. We've heard how Saul was trying to kill you even though you had been a good servant to him. We know that God has blessed you in your battles as you've defended our people from our enemies. We know how you went and rescued the town of Calah when the king didn't. We know what's going on. Trust God that he's going to establish your kingdom. Verse 29, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. And when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he has promised concerning him and appointed him rule over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought My Lord's success, remember your servant. So what she's saying is, look, if God wants you to be king, you're going to be king. And when you take the throne, you will have the ability to say, I fought the battles of the Lord and I did not do this on my own. And you won't have the guilt of knowing that you would needlessly killed a man, his household, his whole town, when the Lord could have taken care of this for you. David says to Abigail, verse 32, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you would not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would be left alive by daybreak. And then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. So basically what David says is you are right. And David had taken the bait of Nabal's insults and all of Nabal's insults had gotten at David and he was in a rage. He had lost control and he was going to murder and to kill everyone connected with Nabal. And David says, hey, I'm so glad that God in his grace put you in my path because I was gonna go somewhere I shouldn't but you st- you've stopped me. I'm, I'm going back. It's good. I trust God. So when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in his house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. And she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Um, did he have a heart attack? Did he have a stroke? Did he have both? Was there an aneurysm? We don't know. Uh, you know um, I'm, I'm sure there are doctors that have given opinions about what happened to him, but we're dealing with ancient sources uh, who are just giving a very generic description. Whatever happened to Nabal, however his manner of death, it definitely seems connected to this realization of how close he had come to death and destruction a realization that the only reason he wasn't dead, because like, when David had shown up, he would have found a very drunk navel totally unable to defend himself. He wouldn't have, you know, maybe servants could have come to him and said, hey, there's a big force marching on us. And he's a rich guy. He's got swords. He probably could have gotten some people together if he had been sober. But because he was drunk, he would not have been able to mount a defense. So he realizes in the sobriety of the next morning how close he had come to disaster. And that is... By implication, directly connected to whatever happened to him, stroke, heart attack, we don't know. But he he died ten days later. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong, and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing on his own head. This is interesting to me. You might remember this from last week, but On his way down, just before Abigail met him, David took a vow. You know, the Lord judge me harshly if by the end of this day every male connected with Nabal, sons, nephews, brothers, servants, if they're not all dead. And he didn't do it. He didn't keep his vow. There's a story in the book of Judges. It's a truly tragic story about a man who went and fought in a battle against the enemies of Israel, and he had fought to help liberate his people, defend his people. And on his way home, he is so thankful, he is so rejoicing in the victory that God had given him. He makes a vow before God, and he says, the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home I will sacrifice it to the Lord. And I think he's thinking, like, the first thing I'll see is a sheep or some other livestock or something like that. You know, whatever it is. It could be my prize bull. It could be the best, uh, you know, the best sheep that I own. Whatever it is, I'll sacrifice it to the Lord. And the book says that the first thing that came out of his house was his daughter. And we're never told for sure whether he actually sacrificed his daughter, but the implication of the book of Judges is that he did it. There are people who make foolish, foolish vows, unbiblical vows. God never asked David to make this vow. And yet they feel bound to things that God's never asked them to be bound to. There are people who make, make vows, and, and, you know, I don't believe, for example, I, I, I've actually uh, once in my life told a nun this. I don't believe a, a nun is necessarily, or a, a priest is necessarily bound to their oaths of celibacy within, <laughs> within context. And what I mean by that is this, let's say that somebody, uh, you know, was, grew up in, in, a, in a Catholic, Orthodox, whatever church still has those, those kind of things, and they make a vow, um, including the vow of celibacy as a nun or a priest, and then, you know, years later, they start reading the Bible for themselves. By the way, I am not one of those Protestants that, that thinks that just because somebody's Catholic or Orthodox or whatever, that they are like, you know, going to hell or something like that. I've known many great brothers and sisters in those streams of the church. That being said, I've also known people who just, because they only knew tradition, they, they, they said, I think this is the way that I can best serve God. And then they go into those, those, those orders And then they start reading the Bible for themselves, which, by the way, is often discouraged. Anytime you are discouraged from reading your Bible, that is a red flag. Anytime you're discouraged from asking questions, that's a red flag. In the Catholic Church, that's usually done through being told not to read your Bible, um, because it only leads to questions. And in the Protestant Church, it's usually, uh, just don't ask questions. (laughs) Um, but anytime anytime being told don't ask questions or don't read your Bible because that, that'll cause issues, that's a red flag. But what happens is they do and they start to read their Bible and they go, wait a minute. I don't find any of this stuff in the Bible. Where, where is any of this stuff coming from? And then, you know, they realize like, hey, maybe I don't have to, Do I? am, am I free of this? I believe yes. I think you're free of things that are unbiblical. There are people who just, make these reckless vows. Now, that being said, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, if you, if you say you're going to do something, do it. The second church I was ever on staff at, this is 2003. Yeah, 2003. The second church I was ever on staff at was a bad experience. I'm thankful for it. (laughs) I'm thankful for it because uh, I learned a lot. Part of my whole deal there was that I agreed when I was hired that I would uh, work for a minimum of uh, six months. Now, by the way, I've learned since, I was a young guy, but I've learned since, like, why would you put a minimum work requirement on me of six months? Like, I wanted the, the job. I, I, I liked the church. I still like that church. Um, like, I wanted to be there. Why, why would they say you have to commit for six months? And I think I th- at the time, I thought it was because were, it was a thing about me being young. That's what I assumed. It was just a thing about me being, I was like 21, 22. And so I thought, oh, okay, it's, it's just a thing about me being young. They think I'm flake, That you know, young people are flaky or something like that. What I learned later <laughs> is that uh, this the, the, the leadership there was at the time, it's better now, but the leadership there at the time uh, was not great and um, had a history of, basically burning out um, staff members quick. And so it was the way of saying like, I don't want to hire you and then you know, have you quit on me in two weeks. And I did want to quit two weeks later. Within two weeks, I wanted to quit. Like I knew it was bad right away. I knew this was a bad situation. It wasn't abusive. If anybody's in an abusive situation, they should leave right away. But I felt compelled like, you know what I I said, I'd be here for six months, so I'm going to stay here for six months. And I was there exactly six months. Uh, I remember I would... I would get off work and I would just go drive. I would just, because it was the only, I would just drive and pray. That's the way I got through those six months. It was tough. Um, I hated it. But I would drive and I would pray. And and I said, you know what, Lord? I said six months, I'm going to be there. And it was, I think, good for me. Now, that being said, like, there are other times where I've, like, realized something wasn't healthy, like, and I've been gone quick, you know. Um, because I don't think if, if you're in an abusive situation, you should be around. Um, you know, I don't think anybody's held to some it's like, well, I, you know, I know, but, but you know, I said, I'd, I, would like, I don't, I really don't, I really don't think that if you're married and, and your spouse is hitting you, that you have to stay in the house, get out of there, get to safety. Where am I going with all this? David didn't fulfill a vow he made that was an evil vow. He had made this vow. He had made this pledge, but he was willing to be wrong and have people say, oh, David broke his word and still do what was right in God's eyes. He was going to do an evil thing. God, in his mercy, shook him up and said, hey, David, don't do this thing. And he repented and he acted rightly. Now he's praising God for it. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to take you to become his wife. And she bowed with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and I am ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. And Abigail quickly got on the donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married Ahinonim of Jezreel and they were both his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Paltiel, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. All right, none of this is good. None of this is good. Um, some things aren't good or evil. They are just what is right or wrong within a certain context or culture. Uh, some things, um, you know, it's like, how should somebody dress? What words should somebody use? There are words that are not offensive to me or my generation at all, but they are incredibly offensive to my grandparents' generation. I told this story before. I know I have. I don't know if it was this podcast or a Sunday morning or whatever, but I remember being at a Thanksgiving years ago, and my my brother said a word that is not offensive in any way to anyone my age or younger. It's incredibly offensive to my grandparents' generation. And I remember he was like, dude, don't say that here. Why? Because we're at Aunt Betty's house. Aunt Betty is our great aunt. She just... um. Uh, she's still with us. She just lost her husband, Um, but they're the oldest relatives we have now. And, um, you know, I just love her to death. She's just a great woman. And uh, to be respectful, I said, it's not wrong for you to say that word. It's wrong in this context. So there are things that aren't right or wrong so much as just that's the context. In the context of Israel, they had this concept of the kinsman redeemer. In fact, David would have known this very well because, His grandfather and grandmother are the most well known example of this story, Ruth and Boaz. Nabal, the husband of Abigail, died. It was right and appropriate that the kinsman redeemer be at least given the chance, be at least given the chance to come and do his duty and marry Abigail. That's what would have been expected. David is breaking the, the rules of the culture. And I know that our culture like loves breaking the rules. <laughs> I mean, literally every Disney movie, the whole point of a Disney movie for the last 20, 25 years has been this. We're going to go to a different culture other than America, and we're going to tell you how wonderful it is to be multicultural, but then we're going to do the most American thing possible. And in a culture that values community, we are going to celebrate the individual and basically they're going to go off and do their thing. And then we're going to expect the community to say that's okay which is the total opposite of how most of the cultures that go, like China, uh, you know, Thailand, uh, Ray and the Last Dragons, like one of my favorite Disney movies the last few years. It, it's all the same thing. These, this idea of, of we're going to go uh, somewhere else and we're going to pretend to celebrate culture, but what we're really going to do is we're going to like imperialistically bring American culture into it. In their culture, this would have been a bad thing. He also wasn't supposed to take another wife. Now, he Saul had taken away his, his first wife. Uh, and I wouldn't hold that against David. That was an evil thing that Saul did. But he had taken up with someone else too. He was starting to amass wives for himself, something the king was not supposed to do. And this caused trouble for him later on. Even before he became the king, what he was doing there caused trouble for him in his later years as king. And it caused great trouble for his sons and his grandsons and all who would come after him because he didn't follow the Lord in this way and in this place. Now, it's interesting, as as bad as all of this is, and it's one of these things that you're not going to see as bad at first. You might go, what's the big deal? He loves who he loves. The bad stuff comes later. The bad stuff comes down the road. The bad troubles come some, some ways decades later. But as much as there's bad here, you can also make an argument for the Lord's goodness. David could have gone and taken her as his wife after killing her husband, but he didn't. I kind of think that was something he would have been down for, but he didn't. And he's praising the Lord because in his time, the Lord took the victory. Somebody might be horrified that that's the uh, um, application that I'm drawing there, but I think there's a place for it. Whatever's going on, I think it's good to remember that David is not a perfect person. But God's grace reaches into our imperfection and brings his true perfection, his holiness, his salvation. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. New episodes are released on our Facebook page, on faithonhill.com, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill. You can follow us on social media at Faith on Hill. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor here. My email is adam at faithonhill.com if you have any questions or just want to say hi. We'll see you again for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.